Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today we're talking about the Chinese Labor Corps. From time to time, we have mentioned other podcasts, ones that obviously don't need me to help promote them. I am going to mention one more right now that I, for one, have been listening to. It's called Empire, and its hosts are Anita Anand and William Dalrymple. Mr. Dalrymple, of course, is a Scottish historian of the South Asian continent, as well as a travel writer, and I've long been a fan of his books. The Empire podcast is structured into seasons, and each season focuses on a different empire. Season one was about the British Empire in India, and the current season, season two, is about the Ottoman Empire. And the other day, they did an episode on the Gallipoli campaign in the First World War. As I'm sure you know, Ottoman Turkey sided with the Central Powers, Germany and Austria-Hungary, in the First World War. And everyone considered Ottoman Turkey to be the weakest of the major belligerents. So, none other than Winston Churchill came up with plans to attack Turkey via the Mediterranean in an attempt to knock it out of the war. The idea was that Germany and Austria-Hungary would become more pliable if they were to lose their junior partner. Churchill's plan ended in disaster, however, and the Allies were forced to withdraw after months of bitter fighting. On the Turkish side, Gallipoli gave rise to a new national figure. Mustafa Kemal, later known as Ataturk, father of the Turks, served heroically in Gallipoli and made his name there. He went on, of course, to become the founding father of modern Turkey. On the Entente side, Gallipoli also provided an epochal event, but not so much for the British and the French themselves. See, the force that Britain and France sent to land on the Gallipoli Peninsula was a multinational one. Both held extensive colonial territories around the world, and they sent the colonials to do the dirty work, most famously Australians and New Zealanders. And the Gallipoli campaign would end up seared on the national psyches of both, galvanizing both to move away from being mere dominions of Britain and become nations in their own rights. In New Zealand, where I partly grew up, ANZAC, that's acronym for Australian and New Zealand Army Corps, remains a universally known term. And ANZAC Day is celebrated each year with great solemnity, with a delegation always going back to Gallipoli to mark the occasion with the Turkish. 
in New Zealand schools, we all grew up hearing about Gallipoli. One detail I remember from my high school days is that many of the New Zealand troops charging the Turkish lines were Maori, members of New Zealand's indigenous tribes. They had very little reason, indeed, for enmity against the Turks. But now I realize that our history lessons in New Zealand were, in turn, too focused on the role of the Anzacs. I have now learned from Anand and Dalrymple's podcast that plenty of other nationalities were present on the Entente side as well, including Muslim subjects of the French colonial empire in North Africa. That, in turn, brought to mind for me the largely forgotten, forgotten in the West anyway, story of the 140,000 Chinese who traveled to Europe during the First World War to serve Britain and France. This story would in turn feed into another epochal event. But we'll get to that toward the end of this episode. The First World War broke out just three years after the 1911 revolution that overthrew the Qing dynasty and established the Republic of China. But as we've talked about on this episode before, the Republic was in for a bumpy ride from the get-go. There were all the warlords holding on to their fiefdoms, for one thing. And then there was Yuan Shikai, the former Qing dynasty general, who maneuvered his way into the presidency only to try to make himself an emperor again. So, given that the Republic of China had its own hands pretty much full, it did not enter the First World War in the wake of Archduke Ferdinand's assassination in Bosnia. Nevertheless, China was eager to improve its international standing. The later decades of the 19th century had left China in a semi-colonized condition. Various foreign powers, including Britain and France, controlled chunks of China as actual colonies or semi-colonial possessions. China at this time had no hope of taking them back by force. But if it could convince major Western powers to treat it like an equal, well then, maybe they would give back the territories voluntarily. In particular, Germany had had a colony in the city of Qingdao, on the Shandong Peninsula, which the Japanese seized as soon as the Great War began, which the Chinese thought they might be able to get back if they played their cards right. Incidentally, the German legacy in that part of China is why the Chinese national beer brand is even today called Qingdao. Meanwhile, in Europe... The catastrophic casualty numbers on the Western Front led to a desperate manpower shortage in both Britain and France. Both countries began to import laborers from their colonial empires, places like India, Egypt, and South Africa, to work in military logistics and support in order to free up more actual soldiers for fighting. 
At this time, it occurred to the Chinese government that they could be a supplier of labor as well. The Chinese military was not trained or equipped to join a war as a belligerent, but it took much less to train and to equip a laborer. Besides, as non-combatants, any Chinese sent to the Western Front stood a much better chance of survival than actual uniformed soldiers. In June 1915, an advisor to Yuan Shikai named Liang Shiyi approached the British government with the proposal. The British turned him down on the grounds that China was not officially allied with the Entente powers, but was neutral. So Liang Shiyi went to the French, who proved to be much more receptive. Actually, the same idea had occurred to the French even before Liang Shiyi first approached the British. Minister of War Alexandre Mirand had brought it up as early as March 1915. In November 1915, the French army officially approved the plan to hire large numbers of Chinese workers. They put one Georges Troupetil in charge of the recruitment effort in China. Monsieur Troupetil had served in France's colonial forces in Indochina was wounded in 1892 in Mali and had retired as a major. Now he was brought back and soon thereafter promoted to lieutenant colonel. Meanwhile, Liang Shiyi established a company on his end to serve as the recruiting agency and front for the Chinese government. Said company signed a contract with Tuptil's organization in May 1916, agreeing to send 50,000 Chinese workers to France to support the war effort. After receiving some basic military training, the first cohort of 1,088 workers set sail for Marseille from the port of Tianjin in June 1916. Upon their arrival in August, The French newspaper Excelsior extolled the virtues of Chinese workers. In particular, the Excelsior noted that most of the workers came from northern China, which meant, the paper said, that they could tolerate French climate much better than the Vietnamese that the French were more familiar with. Meanwhile, the British government reconsidered. And also began to import Chinese workers. Field Marshal Sir Douglas Haig specifically requested in 1916 that 21,000 Chinese be shipped to the UK to fill the labor shortage. Officially, only the contingent of workers who went to serve the British were called the Chinese Labor Corps, although the term came to be more broadly understood as encompassing those in the service of both. Britain and France. The British government put one Thomas J. Bourne, a former railway engineer who had previously spent 28 years in China, in charge of recruitment for their country. In October 1916, Bourne arrived in Weihaiwei, a city also on the Shandong Peninsula, 
essentially just 30 miles down the road from the German colony of Qingdao. And the British began shipping Chinese workers over as well. Interestingly, they mostly had to travel across the Pacific to Victoria, British Columbia, and then by train through Canada before sailing from Halifax for England, from which they then went to France and Belgium. Because Canadian law at this time restricted the number of Asians permitted to enter the country, this operation had to be done in secret. And then two other Brits, Colonel Brian Charles Fairfax and Colonel R.L. Perdon, were placed in command of the Chinese Labour Corps. Both of these men had served in China during the Boxer Rebellion. The invasion of the eight Allied armies at that time is something that the Chinese are still pretty upset about even today. So I wonder what the Chinese laborers' feelings might have been in 1916-1917, knowing that their bosses were two men who participated in that campaign. And in 1917, August of that year, the Republic of China officially declared war on Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. On one level, it was a symbolic gesture, as China had neither the ability nor the intention to fight those countries directly. But within China, this was a significant and hotly debated move, because it meant that China was now abrogating the previous treaties it had signed with Germany or Prussia and with Austria-Hungary. It meant that China was unilaterally moving to take back the colonial concessions that those two powers held within China. But notably, not Qingdao, which, again, was now under Japanese control. With respect to the Chinese Labour Corps, China's official entry into the war meant that Britain and France could now recruit Chinese workers directly and officially, instead of going through corporate fronts. In total, some 140,000 Chinese men served in the Chinese Labour Corps on the Western Front. 100,000 served the British. The French, who had contracted for 50,000 men, ended up getting only 40,000. And of those, 10,000 were reassigned to work for the Americans once they entered the war. On the Western Front, the Chinese performed tasks essential to the war effort, if chiefly low-skilled ones, such as transporting supplies, building barracks, digging trenches, laying railway tracks, and repairing roads. But some Chinese took up more skilled tasks, such as vehicle repairs and weapon maintenance. And they worked for a pittance, between one and three francs per day. I did some math on this. One French franc in 1917 was worth about 17 contemporary U.S. cents, which is about $4 today. So, 
they worked for between four and 12 US dollars per day. This was less than what the British military paid its own lowest ranked personnel. The British also forbade the Chinese from using the same bathrooms as whites. And they worked six and a half days per week. The British and French employers kept them in harsh conditions and forbade them from leaving their barracks, forbade them from going into towns even during their time off. And they only ate two meals per day. Needless to say, there was plenty of racism to go around. Many French accused the Chinese, who for obvious reasons were all physically fit young men, of bringing diseases to their shores. Residents of French towns where these workers were housed petitioned the French government to get rid of them. Never mind that they had come to help France. Chinese workers also fell into conflict with other non-European colonials brought to Europe to help the empires. Notably, they fell into conflict with Africans. And in these fights, they found Vietnamese workers to be their natural allies. In the end, some 2,000 of the 140,000 laborers died in Europe. Although, as they served in non-combat roles, most of these were not combat deaths. The Spanish flu was instead their greatest killer, and their graves are now dotted around northern France and Belgium. After the war, most of the survivors went back to China. Between five and 7,000, though, stayed in France and became members of the Chinese diaspora in that country. The last survivor of this group died in the city of La Rochelle, on the west coast of France in 2002. Now, I promised earlier that I would tell you how this story fed into an epochal event later, as the service of the Anzacs in Gallipoli led to the galvanization of Australian and New Zealand national consciousness. A great change obviously deserves its own episode and we'll do that at some point. But to summarize, remember how I said the Chinese government offered to supply laborers for Britain and France because it wanted to gain international respect so as to be able to take back the colonies that the Western powers had carved out in China? Remember how chief among these colonies was Qingdao, the German possession that the Japanese then occupied. Well, after the Allies won the First World War, the Chinese congratulated themselves. They had chosen the right side in the war, the winning side. So surely the British, the French, and the Americans, with President Woodrow Wilson lecturing the world about national self-determination, surely they would now hand Qingdao back to China. To their shock, at the Paris Peace Conference, 
the Allies instead opted to award Qingdao to its existing occupiers, the Japanese. It was this shock, this sense of betrayal and disillusionment, the fact that the Chinese had sided with the Allies by sending the Labor Corps, Allies who were supposed to be the good guys in the First World War, and these alleged partners then betrayed the Chinese. It was this shock that led to a series of protests across China that came to be known as the May 4th Movement. Students across China marched with banners with the slogan, Give us back our Qingdao. And the May 4th movement would turn out to be a key turning point in the history of modern China. Among many other things, it led to the popularization of Marxism. And a year later, the founding of the Chinese Communist Party. All this, how Allied betrayal ultimately, if indirectly, led to China becoming communist, is largely forgotten in the West, but it's certainly not forgotten by the Chinese. And it's certainly not forgotten here on MODG. Thank you for listening.